Hello, and welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. So when thinking about the Reformation and the Reformers, most of us, for most of us, our minds immediately jump to Martin Luther. And for a good reason. A lot of what the Reformation centers around is the controversy of his insistence on salvation by faith alone and his criticism against the corruption of the church. And the conflict of this really came to a head at his trial in Worms. I had the opportunity years ago to visit Worms, which I don't know if you guys knew this, but is actually the sister city of Mobile, right here where we are. And you see the famous statue of Luther. But I noticed that there were a couple of other statues as well. There was a statue of Peter Waldo, uh, no relation to the guy that is difficult to find in books, John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, and there was another fellow. And they stood there as a reminder that Martin Luther's Reformation was not born in a vacuum, but that he was taking one step further that had started many decades before he was even born. And so, for that reason, before we get into talking about Martin Luther and John Calvin and the English Reformation, we'd like to talk about the events and people and thought of the pre-Reformation, the things that led to Martin Luther's famous nailing of the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. In particular, today we want to talk about English theologian John Wycliffe and Bohemian theologian Jan Hus. And with us today in our new studio on the campus of the University of Mobile is Dr. Robert Olson, who teaches church history here at the university. So we're very glad to have you actually back on the show. You led us through Nestorianism earlier before, if I recall. And Eutychianism. And Eutychianism. Right. Two sides of the coin. Yes. That's right. (laughs) So it's great to have you back. And thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be back. So, Bob, I think the big question that we need to ask is, what were the, the cultural, the theological concerns at the time that these men were living that led up to the Reformation? All right. Well, as a church historian, I'm a big fan of understanding the context because whenever you look at what's going on in church history, a lot of the theological issues of the day are inspired by political events or theological controversies. So when we're dealing with Wycliffe and Huss, you really have to look at what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church leading up to their events in the late 14th and early 15th century. So it all really goes back to issues with the papacy. So now again, as a sidestep, as a church historian, the problem you have with church history is every era you go to, you start unraveling it and you realize that it connects to a previous era and a previous era, which is why I would contend that everybody should know their church history because what you're doing today, you can draw all these things back all the way to Jesus himself. So 
when we're dealing with Wycliffe and Huss, we have to look at what's going on in the papacy. And we go back to 1292 AD, which is almost 100 years before Wycliffe, because what happens then is Pope dies. That's not unusual. But in this case, it takes the College of Cardinals two years to pick a successor. And because they don't have a successor, people are getting upset. They're like, we have to have a pope. This is standard. Why don't you have a pope? So there's an outcry. But what's going on is the papacy is a very political entity. If you go back to the strongest pope in history is Pope Innocent III, who was pope from 1198 to 1216. And under his papacy, he was able to influence the political proceedings of almost every country in Western Europe. So basically at this point in time, the Holy Roman Empire had lost a lot of power because of its continual conflicts with the pope. And so in the early 1200s, you have no really strong centralized government that can compete with the pope. Well, that changes by the end of the 13th century and France is becoming a major national power. So Pope dies. There's a man by the name of De Moroni, Pietro De Moroni, who is a hermit and a very devout Christian. And people like devout Christians. People like hermits. They find them to be holy men and worthwhile individuals. And he writes a letter to the College of Cardinals and says, you folks have to get this under control and elect a pope. And they go, okay, you're pope. Well, he's a hermit. Hermits don't like to be popes. So when he gets chosen as pope, he does not like it. And he does basically nothing for six months, as in he's he's not a good administrator. He doesn't want to be doing these things. So he is Celestine V is the name he takes. And he actually makes a papal bull that says that popes can resign, and then he resigns. So which has come up recently because if you remember the previous Pope, Mm -hmm. Benedict XVI, he's the first Pope since Celestine V to actually retire or resign. So he resigns. The next Pope is Boniface VIII. And the problem is if you're a Pope and there's another guy around who was also Pope who's really popular, that's kind of a threat. So Boniface VIII tracks him down because he goes back to being a hermit and he basically puts him under house arrest. He's allowed to have some visitors and such, but he's just concerned that this could become an issue. Well, eventually Celestine V dies, which of course makes everybody like, whoa, what did Boniface VIII have to do with this? So that's not going to bode well for Boniface VIII because the King of France liked Celestine V and had supported him. So this is the background to Boniface VIII. Philip the Fair is Philip IV of France. He's the king, and he is going to start a war with England, and so he needs to raise money. Who has a lot of money? The church. Well, you're not allowed to tax the church without permission. So he's going to get permission to tax the church, but he taxes them before official permission is given. Boniface VIII is like, yo, you don't have proper permission yet. This is a problem. Now, for anybody familiar with modern culture, if you're familiar with the TV show The Office— the TV show The Office has— Is this the BBC no, iteration or the U.S.? The, the U.S. one. Michael Scott is basically Philip the Fair, and Toby is basically Boniface VIII. Philip the Fair absolutely hates Boniface VIII and does everything he can to undermine him at every turn. So— or if you know Seinfeld, it would be like Seinfeld and Newman, right? You have this, this incredible animosity that almost borders on, I mean, it's extreme. So Philip says, oh, well, you're going to say we can't tax the clergy? Well, guess we're not going to do any business with Rome. No economy, no money, nothing is going to Rome, and it starts to make Rome collapse. Now, the Pope has enemies in Rome. 
right? He's from the Gaetani family. You have the Kelowna family who are enemies. And so he's kind of caught between, yeah, I know. It's, it's like that's, mafia that stuff, That sounds right? very mafia. So, uh, <laughs> so, so you have these issues. So he's kind of stuck because he's catching flack at home. And that's kind of a threat. He's catching flack from Philip. So he basically says, okay, as long as they give tithes voluntarily, it's okay. All right. So later on, that's in the late 1200s. At the turn of the century, around 1300 or so, Philip decides to confiscate some church property and he arrests a bishop from the south of France and charges him with treason. Now, the south of France had not been French for very long. Basically, the northern part of France had taken it over in some crusades against heretics. So southern France was still kind of a contentious area, right? It was not like we're all one big happy France, just like today, right? It's Provence. It's the southern part of France. So the bishop is arrested and Boniface says, uh-uh, you can't do this. You cannot arrest clergy, right? You can't arrest, that belongs to the church. So Boniface gathers up nobles, the church, and they basically say, you know what? We oppose you, Pope, and we think you need to be put on trial for being an unworthy and an inept Pope. So you need to be on trial. And the Pope is like, I'm not going to be on trial. So part of the accusations, this, I always find it fun when you look at medieval accusations, because it's basically, let's dump as much stuff as possible on people and hope some of it sticks. It's very much like politics today where, you know, oh, this person took a stand here. He hates poor people. He's, you know, you just dump everything you can and hope something sticks. So Boniface charges the Pope with heresy, blasphemy, sodomy, and keeping a pet demon. Right, so don't know how to substantiate this, but still, this which is, of those is worst? Right, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting all these charges, which of course we have no way of substantiating. But Boniface, except for the the pet demon, that's right. Yeah. I we, guess we, we can, can know that beyond certain. <laughs> yeah. But that always just cracks me up. It's like just just throw this in there just for the sake of you know. Just well, to it, it got get me. a rise. Yeah. It got yeah, me. That's right. Yeah. I'm like, well, this guy really yeah. must be bad. So. What happens then is Boniface says, okay, he puts out a papal bull, and a papal bull is just an official statement from the Pope called Unum Sanctum. And in the papal bull Unum Sanctum, it's taking a lot of positions that the popes had held, but it's really putting them all in one nice, neat packet. And in Unum Sanctum, the Pope declares that just as the moon receives its light from the sun, so secular authorities receive their power from the Pope. And in doing so, he says, the Pope has power over secular governments. The Pope can depose a king. King can't do anything to the Pope. And if you don't like this, if you are not subject to the Pope, then your salvation is at stake. So that's an extreme statement you're going to see. And that you can see is going to cause problems later on because if the Pope is saying, I have power over everything in the world and you have to do what I say, that's a really scary precedent. So Boniface ignores this and so the Pope is going to excommunicate him. And he gets word of, of that he's going to be excommunicated and the night before he gets ex- he's going to be excommunicated, he has some of his men go and kidnap the Pope and the Pope dies a couple days later. So the excommunication is never issued. The next pope comes along and dies within a year. And then the following pope is Clement V, who is from Bordeaux. Now, Clement V is pope from 1305 to 1314. One of the reasons he's chosen is England and France are at war and Bordeaux has ties to England because of Aquitaine and all this stuff and ties to France. So it's kind of like a great mediator. 
So this war has been going on for a while now, right? It, yeah, it's technically not the Hundred Years' War. That's going to start okay. in 1337. But England and France, because of the Norman Conquest, it started in 1066, yeah. right, that happened. You have all of these ties to who gets what rights to what property and what throne because you have these two kingdoms that are merged in a sense. And that's going to be really messy. And that will end up being the cause, the ultimate cause of the Hundred Years' War and, and the end of the Hundred Years' War. So the Pope is is trying to mediate between these two, but he's located in Bordeaux and he does not come to Rome. And as a side note, in the meantime, Philip the Fair says, we need to dig up Boniface VIII and put him on trial for heresy and then burn him. Like he wants him to be exhumed, stuck on a throne, put on trial, which has been done before, right? They've dug up popes before and put a dead, you know, rotting body on trial and then thrown him in the Tiber River and stuff. So Philip the Fair is just riding Clement. We've got to dig him up, we've got to dig him up, which ultimately... Clement will allow him to do what he wants with the Templars, and then it kind of leaves Boniface alone. But Clement V is there in southern France, and he never makes it to Rome because he would he wants to go to Rome, or he tries to, and then more issues happen with the England and the French. So basically, he they move in 1309. They move the papal offices to the town of Avignon in the south of France. And I mean, when you move these things, you're doing hundreds of people, books, libraries. So it's in the south of France. And he dies in 1315, and the next pope elected is a French pope who stays in Avignon. So this is called the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. It's also called Western Schism, but we also have other schisms and stuff, so we have to be careful how we name these. But from 1309 to 1377, the popes reside in Avignon. At this point in time, there are an inordinate number of French cardinals chosen. And even though Avignon technically is not part of France, it's under the control of the French monarchy. So 1377, the Pope visits Rome. There's a big cry that the papacy needs to go back to Rome. And you might think, who cares where the Pope is located? But why is the Pope the Pope? The Pope is the Pope because he is the Bishop of Rome. He receives his power from the fact that he falls in line with Peter and Paul. If you're not in Rome, how can you say you have this divine power because you don't have any connection to Peter and Paul? So a lot of the uh, mystics get involved. Catherine of Siena is telling uh, the Pope, you need to go back to Rome. He goes back to Rome in 1377 and he dies in 1378. When he dies, they're going to elect a new pope. And the mob in Rome is like, yeah, you're going to elect a new pope. And he's going to be Italian, isn't he? Right? So there's basically, you're going to elect an Italian or we're going to riot. More mafia type. Yeah, that's how how things work there. So they elect a guy who's an Italian, who uh, Urban VI, who is elected. And immediately he basically berates and belittles the cardinals, calls them idiots in front of other people. And the cardinals are like, we don't really like this guy. We voted for him under duress. And the French cardinals elect another pope. This a is sounding pope. eerily contemporary, but continue. <laughs> yeah, so they elect a new pope. So it's the first time you have two popes that were both elected by cardinals. You've had multiple popes before for various reasons, but one is always an anti-pope, right? And so here you have two elected popes, an Italian one who's living in Rome and the French one who goes back to Avignon. What do you do? Because the various political entities choose sides. France and Spain choose the Avignon Pope, so does Scotland, parts of the Holy Roman Empire, England, Italy, most of the Holy Roman Empire choose the Latin Pope. So... You have to be careful how you pick your sides because the side that you're not with has excommunicated you, 
right? So if you choose the Latin Pope, well, then according to the French Pope, you're excommunicated and vice versa. So you can see this is really problematic and everybody knows this is a problem, right? It doesn't take only the academics to realize two popes is wrong. The common person realizes this. The church is supposed to be unified. We're supposed to have a singular head. We have two heads. So for 30 years, you have this movement. You have various sides trying to, to wiggle for political control. And finally, there's a group of conciliarists, which we don't need to get into, but they're people who want councils to determine Catholic doctrine, not the popes. Sadly, it, they make some political blunders and the pope is able to, through other reasons, to end the conciliar movement. I think it would have been really helpful. But conciliarists say, you know what? This is never going to resolve itself. Let's make a council at the Council of Pisa and we'll elect a new pope. So it's not really an official council because neither pope was there nor did they call it. And the Council of Pisa, they depose both popes and elect a new pope. Neither pope steps down and now we have three popes. So it takes until 1415 when we can whittle this down to just one. But you can see you go from one pope to two pope to three popes. This is absurd, and everybody knows it's absurd. So it's in that setting that you have to understand what's going on with Wycliffe and Huss. So that's really helpful to set the backdrop and the stage for Wycliffe. So now enter stage right. Wycliffe comes on the scene. Christendom in Europe is in complete disarray. People have completely lost faith in the system, so to speak. And here he comes. So who is who is John Wycliffe? John Wycliffe is an Englishman born, we don't know when, anywhere between 1324 and 1330. I just choose 1329 because I do. John Wycliffe is trained at Oxford. Now, Oxford is probably the number two theology university at this time. Paris would be number one. Oxford would certainly be in the top. And so he's at Oxford. He's under the teaching of somebody like Thomas Bradwardine, who will influence him theologically, because you can keep tracing things back, right? You don't even, you can start at people before Wycliffe, but Wycliffe comes in under these circumstances, and somehow he becomes close to the monarchy in England. He's friends with John of Gaunt, who is the king's son. So Wycliffe reads the Bible. He's a scholar, right? This is what you do. You're a theologian. You have access to the Bible. And as he's reading the Bible, he realizes that a lot of the things that the church is doing doesn't measure up with what the Bible says. One of his main complaints, and you'll see this all the way down through the time of Luther, is he looks at monasticism and he says, here are these people that are supposed to take a vow of, of chastity and poverty and and they're not, they're not doing these things. He hated the friars most of all because they're out there begging and they have great monastic houses. They have illegitimate children. They're ignorant. And this irritates him. As well, he sees what's going on with the popes and he's like, this is ridiculous. This whole scenario is ridiculous. So he starts to write against the issues that he sees in the church. So one of the first works he writes, the first one, the main one is in 1376, and it's uh, on civil lordship or on civil dominion. And what his argument is, is that God has ordained all authority. And so if the church is not living the way it ought to be, if they're not living with apostolic poverty, if they are motivated by greed, then they are not to be obeyed. An unworthy pope or an unworthy priest is not to be obeyed and they should be removed. And if the church isn't going to do it, it falls to the secular authorities to do this. 
which you'll see with Luther, he'll make the same argument with the German princes that if the church is going to reform itself, then the princes have the duty to do this. Well, this doesn't sit well with the church. And so- I can't imagine why. Yeah, right. Because, yeah. So the Bishop of London says, all right, we, we need to call him in to address this. So when he goes to London, he's there with John of Gaunt and John of Gaunt's friends who are, you know, important political figures. And when they go to the trial, John of Gaunt doesn't even allow the trial to proceed. He basically tells Wycliffe, don't even sit to be judged by the the bishop because this trial's not worthy anyway. And so the whole time you have just an argument about whether or not Wycliffe needs to sit and nothing is done and he leaves. So you have somebody who's going against the church and he's not being punished. Now that's very rare, but it makes sense in England. England never had the Inquisition. They never needed an Inquisition. You didn't have heretics like the Cathars, the Albigensians, those folks running around. And so they didn't really have these checks and balances. And at the same time, you had a monarchy that was more and more against the church because you're in the Hundred Years' War. Your money to the church goes to the Pope, who's in southern France, who you're fighting against. So the political situation for Wycliffe is very important because it allows him to say these things without getting in trouble. He's basically refuting the bull unum sanctum in some of his arguments. He's saying, no, it's not the son of the S-U-N of the Pope and the reflected light in the civil authority, but vice versa. Right. He, well, he would say or not vice they're, versa. They're, they're but. both. And when you look at like the medieval time period, you have the two swords understanding of government, which comes from Luke 22, which I always find to be interesting. And this is even in Unum Sanctum, where the, is it Peter that says, look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. Well, that actually is, is used to support the idea that there's a secular arm of the government and a, a spiritual arm of the government. And the two should work together. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's a yeah allegorical yes. reading in that text. But you do have Paul's statement in Romans 13 that the government, mm-hmm. the governing authorities bear a sword. That's right. Um, that's right. So Wycliffe is allowed to refute some of these officially endorsed papal roles or this theology or ideas coming out of the church because of the unique situation in England and its uneasy relationship with the Catholic church. And it's something that needs to be said. A lot of modern people think that the medieval time period was a theocracy. It's Mm. not. Mm -hmm. Calvin's Geneva is as close as I can think of to a theocracy. But the the medieval church said, look, the, the church has its place and the secular government has its place, which is why when you look at Martin Luther, he has two trials, just like Jesus had to be tried by the Jews and then by the Romans in the same way. If you were a heretic, you had to be tried by the church and then by the civil government in order to be executed because the church didn't have the power to execute people. So Mm -hmm. this is a perennial issue. I mean, it goes all the way through the American founding and, you know, what's, we have these Puritans that have fled from Europe and establishing the new world, quote unquote. There were people living here. It was an old world, but, um, (laughs) you know, a new England. And what is going to be the relationship between these churches and governing authorities? We need some sort of government, but how is it going to relate to congregations that we want to allow freedom of religion to, you know? That's right. Although the Puritans so long want, as they're yeah. Protestant. Well, and the Puritans so only wanted freedom to yeah. to for themselves. Right. Right. The the but, Pilgrims are like whoever, but the yeah. Puritans are like, no, no, you're free to be Congregationalist, or else you pay a tax or leave. Yeah. Yeah. But it's uh, you could trace it all the way back to Pilate's conversation with Jesus yeah. on yeah. you know the Jews are claiming you're a king. That's troubling for me as a Roman right. governor. What kind of king are you? And Jesus saying, my kingdom's not of this world. That's and right. 
through Constantine, through the Middle Ages. And yes. you know, so these aren't just dead issues. No, They're still, no, you know, no. lively debated in American presidential elections and wherever else in the, you know, European Union or where you see yeah. these things. Yeah. Please continue, sorry. All right. So back with uh, Wycliffe and his works. Over the next five years, he produces several treatises. He does one on the power of the Pope. He has one on the importance of Scripture, and he has one on the Eucharist, which is really going to be the one that gets him in trouble, which is kind of funny because today we'd think these other ones would get him in trouble. But each of these is important. The next one he writes on Holy Scripture, because the problem is if we're going to go against the church, then how do we receive, then what's our authority? So Wycliffe is driven to Scripture because he says, well, obviously we don't believe that the Pope can be, is necessarily right. He's a human. He's a person. And at the same time, he says, you know, we, we have to look back at church fathers as well. And can we trust these or not? And so what he does is he says, scripture has to be the means by which we judge all of our Christian doctrine. And because we have to use the Bible to judge these things, we have to know what it says. So he argued that the Bible should be translated into English. And that's not You'll often hear people say that you weren't allowed to translate the Bible into native languages. It's just that you had to have approval. So not any old person could just take a Bible and translate it. The church would have to give authority to it. Now, the French, you were not allowed to translate a Bible into French in France. In 1299, they said you can't do this because they found that everybody who translated the Bible for themselves ends up disagreeing with the Catholic Church. So the Waldensians the Cathars, who were heretics, but uh, Gnostics. <laughs> so Wycliffe said, look, we already have the Bible in French because of being under direct French control for a few hundred years. They had it in French. You can find old English versions of the Bible as well. So it wasn't like it was illegal, but it certainly was frowned upon unless the church gave approval. So Wycliffe said, no, we need to have this in English and everybody needs to have access to this. So you need to preach the gospel so people can hear it. They need to understand what the Bible says. And two of the lasting things, when we think of Wycliffe, we think of Wycliffe Bible translators, and two of the most important things that we're going to get from him is the notion that the Bible needs to be translated into native languages and it needs to be preached. So that's not super contentious. He begins to work on a translation. It's incredibly wooden. The translation is basically word for word. So he's taking the Latin and word for word, which again, Latin is a case-based language. And so, but it, it reads like you're translating Latin, like mm -hmm. a first level Latin student. So, but his followers are going to take this up. We'll see that later. The one that he writes on the Pope, interestingly with the Pope, the thing that that is interesting is he starts off by saying that you only have to obey a Pope if it's a worthy Pope. Later on, he says, you know, I think the Pope in general is just antichrist. The whole position of the Pope is antichrist. He actually thought that the great schism between the number of popes was sent by God to undermine the papacy so we could get rid of it. So, that, which I thought, that's an interesting take on it. He's so, like, oh. So is. he's accusing the Pope of being Antichrist, and that's a huge theme yeah. that yeah. you see in, yeah. in Luther's and Calvin's writing as well. That's right. Yep. And yet he's still not, he's not condemned mm -hmm. for this, and he doesn't lose support. But what's going to cost him support is when he writes on the Eucharist. And that's in 1381, which is at, at this point, it's basically going to cause him to lose the support of the government and he's going to remove himself from Oxford, which for most Protestants, I'm thinking, why is the Eucharist that big of a deal? But for the Roman Catholic Church, 
transubstantiation, which is the view that when the priest says the words of consecration at the mass, the bread actually becomes the physical body of Christ and the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. Looks like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread, but it's actually the physical body of Christ. And the same with the wine, looks like wine, tastes like wine, smells like wine, but it's the actual blood of Christ. But he didn't like this view because it was too philosophical. It was affirmed at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. This is official Roman Catholic doctrine. And he goes back to an earlier understanding of the Eucharist that you see in the 800s. And well, you could argue it was held from the early church as well, where it's a spiritual presence of Christ. An analogy would work like this. If, if a human who is a body and soul is eaten by a shark, well, the shark is not eating his soul. He's eating the physical part, but the soul is not being eaten. And that's how he sees Christ is present in the bread in the way like a soul is present in a human. You eat it, but you're not, it's not there physically. Which still in my modern Baptist mindset, I'm like, okay, well, I don't really see a big deal. But that's what lost, that all these other things he said, he was able to say them, the church didn't like it, but that's the one thing that really did it. And so that is what, causes him to lose the support of a lot of the people. Now, one of the other things, he also writes a book on the church where he says the church is the universal body of believers, which you would see in Augustine, which is important because that way the Pope can't say who's in and who's out of the church. It's not up for the Pope to decide because whoever is predestined by God in any scenario, Eastern Orthodox, which they point to, uh, you know, the Eastern Orthodox, they don't answer to the Pope. There are Christians over there. So the Christians that are from all time are who belong to the church. The Roman Catholic Church is part of this, but the Pope does not have the power to determine who's in and out. So he undermines the Pope's power of excommunication, which of course he's already said the Pope shouldn't even exist anyway. So these are his main views. And he dies in 1384 while he's still in the good graces of the church. So he has many of his views have been condemned, but he will not be condemned until 1415. He's going to be condemned at the Council of Constance as a heretic. And in 1428, they dig up his body and burn it and throw it in the river swift. So you can't have a shrine, right? You want to get right. rid of all traces of your enemy so that people can't go and worship there and everything else. Does, do does that also have a, an understanding of the resurrection? Whereas if we get rid of the remains, then he's not going to be able to be resurrected. I don't think they held that view because they knew there's people that die in shipwrecks and stuff. Mm -hmm. They knew that, you know, Christians would be burned, you know, were burned early on. It's mainly to prevent people from using it as a rallying point, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, here's Wycliffe. He's the guy you condemned right now. There's no sign of Wycliffe. So that would be, I would say, the, the number one reason they would do it. They don't like they don't like shrines, and then people can you know get rebellious because they get angry at the people that executed them and stuff like that. It's a good explanation because when you think about what was the point of being burned at the stake, and it was it was supposedly a last ditch effort, an opportunity for repentance. Like you're feeling the fires of hell, and this is going to be eternal. So with your last thirty seconds of life, you should repent. But bones are not having a problem with moral or ethical dilemmas and sinning their bones. That's and right. So right. Getting rid of it because they don't want a mausoleum or a relic. That's right. It's good. 